Turn your Bibles to Acts 18 as we go through the book verse by verse, Acts 18, 1 through 11. Uh, when I was in grade school, I can remember when my parents would leave the house, my brother and I would try to watch some scary movies. And for us, that meant to remember the old Frankenstein or Dracula, the mummy, the werewolf, those were the old ones. Okay, now I normally wasn't scared of the dark, but after watching one of those, I mean, it truly spooked me, right? Sometimes we get spooked by things that might be different than watching a movie. It might be heights. We might fear failure. There's a whole host of things that, that we can fear. In this passage, it doesn't come right out and tell us that Paul got spooked, but by what God had orchestrated in his life, it seems obvious that there was something going on with Paul that God knew about and, and addressed it with him. And so we're going to look at it from that kind of an angle. hope that you find some great encouragement in this. So let's, uh, let's all stand, look at our passage. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and, he, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So the apostle Paul is on the last leg of his second missionary journey. And if you look up on the map on the far left, you'll see that he has traveled from Athens to Corinth. That's about 50 miles. Now, Corinth was a Roman colony and capital of Achaia. If Athens was the cultural pinnacle of Greece with its architecture and academics and artistic pursuits, then Corinth was more like Las Vegas, okay? Um, it was known for the money that flowed through it, and it was known for the sexual immorality that was rampant throughout it. The city had approximately 700,000 people. There was an upper class of people because there were two ports, and so a lot of money flowed in, but there was also... Uh, historians tell us over half the population were slaves or employees. So you had these two classes within Corinth, 
And that's what made up this early church that Paul had started, these two classes of of people. Uh, Religiously and culturally, Corinth was a hodgepodge of varying cultures, including followers of Aphrodite, that goddess of love that adherents expressed it through sexual immorality, their worship of, of this idol. Other Italians came and stayed there, obviously, and then there was uh, Roman army veterans would stay there, and also a large population of Jews. Now, the reputation of Corinth was such that when uh, Greek people wanted to talk about people who were living in immorality, they would say that this person lived like a Corinthian. So that was the reputation of Corinth. So we start with verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul goes to Corinth alone. Now normally he would go with a partner, but he just so happened to go alone to this particular city, and we don't know how long it took, but he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla. Now, this couple is mentioned several times in Scripture, and what's interesting is that in the other passages, Priscilla is named first. Now, you may not think that that was a big deal, but most commentators think that she probably came from a family of nobility, which gave her, you know, first billing. Now, apparently it was their faith and their vocation that caused this couple and Paul to come together in Corinth. Now, we know that they were tent makers, and tent makers were, the tents were often made of leather, so these people really were experts in putting all kinds of leather products together. And it tells us that this couple had fled from Rome because the emperor Claudius had delivered an edict that he wanted all Jews out of Rome. And historians tell us that there were some Jewish factions that were upset with some Christian Jews, and it seemed like they were always squabbling with each other, and finally Claudius had had enough and said, out. So he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. What is worth noticing about this particular couple is something unusual in their relationship with Paul, because we don't read about Paul ministering so much to them What we read about is how they ministered to Paul. They provided a home base for him at Corinth. It was a place that was safe and encouraging. I like to think that as they sat down to a meal, there was Paul talking to them about the day's happenings. Now, wouldn't you love to be at that meal hearing the Apostle Paul's adventures of that day in ministry? Paul would later write this of this couple from Romans 16. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. We might say it this way, that behind every person that's on the front lines who's taking the shots, there is usually someone behind the scenes who is encouraging that person that's on the front lines. There's somebody else who is supporting them, who's creating a safe space for them. 
The fact is, we all know that the battlefield is strewn with people who love to stab others in the back, who criticize, who like to tell you what to do, who mess things up so that you have to clean up the mess. But by the grace of God, there is always a Priscilla and Aquila. Who is that couple for you? And I don't think it was by accident that this couple met up with Paul because God knew that Paul needed that couple for them. They stuck out their necks for Paul. That's quite a, quite a thing to say about some friends, isn't it? I believe these friends will stick out their neck for me. What does that mean? They didn't really care about whether their agenda was addressed. They didn't really care if they were criticized. They didn't care if there was any money involved with this. They didn't care if Paul got all the credit. They didn't care if they were threatened because they realized it was this mission that Paul was on that mission and they were going to you know, hitch their ride to what Paul was doing on this mission in the kingdom of God. And they stuck with Paul through thick and thin. And all the churches that Paul had dealt with were thankful for them because they knew that Paul benefited. And even though they had this relationship with Paul and he was ministering, they were thankful that Paul had people like Aquila and Priscilla in his life to encourage them. Now, it'd be easy for us to focus on, you know, I wonder who that person is in my life who's my Aquila and Priscilla. But there's a better question that we should ask ourselves. Are we the kind of friends that Aquila and Priscilla were to Paul? Or are we prone to leave too quickly and get our feelings hurt and assume an offense? Are we the kind that sticks closer than a brother? Are we a safe place for those who are hurting and they can come and and rest? Are we the kind of people that don't dominate a conversation but will listen to others who are hurting? We don't talk about ourselves. We're listening. We're saying, tell me more. Are we the kind of people that can be counted on? You know what I find? Is that if I am that kind of friend, it's funny how this happens, you attract other friends like that, right? And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, to reason in the synagogue implies that Paul was having a conversation with the Jews. He was answering their objections. So it was almost like a, a classroom setting, right? He was trying to persuade them. And he was trying to persuade them that this Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. You know what? We can get in arguments about all kinds of things. We can try to turn people to our political party. We can try to convince them of our sports team is better than others. We can try to tell them, you know, who's going to win the World Cup. We've got a thousand things that we can argue about with people. But let me ask you this. Is there anything more important than persuading people that Jesus was the Messiah? Is there any conversation more important to have with people? I can't think of it. 
In fact, I try to steer away from all the other ones. Because I know there's no, I don't want anything to get in the way of that. So I'm here to tell you, I don't care what political party you're a part of. I don't care what sports team you're for, unless it's the Cubs. I don't care, all right? I'll try to love you anyway. Yeah. But it's this conversation that we have with others for the gospel. Now, people aren't projects. You've heard me say this before. I'm not trying to give them some canned spiel. I just want people to know that this is the most important thing in our life. It's the most important conversation we can have. And that's what Paul was doing here in the synagogue. You know, he just came from the Areopagus in Athens, and he was conversing with some of the greatest intellectuals of the day. And he's trying to convince them, a much different audience of the same thing. In Corinth, it was a synagogue, a religious audience. In Areopagus, it was these Greek intellectuals, philosophers. And this conversation, I like this approach because I think it gives respect to the individuals. It lets them know that their their objections are being addressed. Let's take time and talk about this. It doesn't mean you have an answer for every objection. But you know what? I find that I benefit greatly from those questions that I don't know how to answer because I can dig and try to find out myself. So I grow from that. Don't run from it. Walk into it. Welcome it. It's amazing how the Lord will use that in your own life and in the life of this other person, that they know you care enough that you're going to try to find out what the answer is, right? Luke reports that Silas and Timothy arrived after Paul in Corinth. And then we're given this little tidbit of information from 2 Corinthians 11.9, and it helps us understand what Paul meant or what uh, Luke meant when he wrote that Paul was occupied with the word. What we find out from the passage in Corinthians is that Macedonia had sent along to Timothy and Silas a financial gift for Paul. So when it says that in Acts that Paul was occupied, it means that he was fully engrossed with the activity of the word of God, of teaching the word. So apparently this gift freed Paul up to dedicate his time full-time with preaching the word. Now, to the Jew, learning a trade was important. They respected the fact that Paul was a tent maker, and even the rabbis would have this, you know, another gig on the side. That was important to the Jew. But for Paul, the work was too important, and there was an urgency that beckoned him to do this full-time, to explain the word, to teach the word, and it just burned in his heart. What a great encouragement for Paul that there was a Silas and a Timothy. Not only because they delivered this generous gift, but also because they gave Paul some good news of a prior ministry that Paul had had with the Thessalonians. And I want you to listen to Paul's words as he received this news, but I want to remind you of something. That in Thessalonica, there was tremendous persecution that took place. A mob had risen up in the city to come against Paul and the gospel. And it's in the midst of that that we read this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love 
and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Isn't that wonderful that there are people that always think of you kindly? Have you ever been involved in relationships where people always take you wrong, who will never allow an offense to die? Here, they always take you kindly. That shows some maturity. Paul is thankful for them. They long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if we are standing fast in the Lord. If anything describes ministry, it is this, stress and affliction and encouragement. It's a mixed bag. Stress and affliction and encouragement. And that's for anybody who's involved in any kind of ministry. You know that it involves stress. Now, maybe not the kind of affliction that Paul experienced. At least I don't know of any of you that have been put in jail because of your faith or beaten because of your faith, but that's a different kind of affliction. I mean, what a tandem. Stress and affliction, but great encouragement because I see that the word of God is having a positive effect upon your life and that's what gets the juices going. That's what keeps me motivated because I see how God is using that word in the lives of others. So in addition to the support and the great response of the Thessalonians, here's Silas and Timothy there present with Paul they were a great encouragement. God knew Paul needed all of that and delivered it to him. And when they opposed and reviled him, speaking of the Jews in the synagogue in Corinth, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So there were these Jews that had expressed some opposition to Paul, and they slandered and maligned him. This is when people will say anything to come against someone else. It matters not whether it has anything to do with truth or reality. They just want separation, okay? And they want to malign. And Paul at this point knew that his time, at least, with that band of Jews was done with. There were still some that were listening, so he's always open to talk to them, but there are these others who opposed him. And he shook out his garment, and he said, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Shook out his garment. A little shimmy with the toga. Maybe a reference to Exodus 33, where the the people of Israel tore off, it says, their ornaments as a way of expressing their repentance before God. It seems clear in this context that if the Jews who rejected the gospel found themselves ultimately rejected by God, the blame would rest at their feet. And Paul says, not at mine, I'm innocent. I did everything I could to give you this message and you rejected it. So he wants them to know. 
that their rejection of this message places them in the same position as an unbelieving Gentile, they will face the judgment of God. Their guilt and coming punishment are on their heads. They alone are responsible. They can't blame anybody. What do we take away from this? Let me throw this out. That when your service is offered in love to the Lord, and it could be a whole variety of things. I'm not just talking about you know, vocational pastors or spiritual leaders. Anybody here, if you're a Christian, you're a minister. You understand that? You got a gift, you're in ministry. So anybody who's serving, all right, and you offer that in love and you are rejected or the message is rejected, you have to rest in the fact that the spiritual battle that people go through, that's on them. That's their own. Not that we can't help, but that's, they bear responsibility. And the servant of Christ cannot shoulder the blame for the rejection. And accepting that blame piles on the conscience of the spiritual leader, and it brings more weight than he or she should bear. Now, notice I said the servant who offers service and love, because sometimes the servant of Christ does not offer service and love. All right, sometimes they're a toad. All right, that's in the Greek. They were to- you can be a toad. All right. In other words, they do it for personal gain. They do it out of boastful pride. They see what they can get out of the deal. But instead, this, I'm talking about service that's, that's offered with an open heart. So when the spiritual leader has a, or, or any of us as ministers, when we have a humble confidence before Christ, then we can leave the responses between the recipient and God and walk away from it. If I sat and thought about every single person that has rejected me or rejected the message and I wanted to replay that, I'm here to tell you, I cannot bear that weight. I can't. There has to be something else that can incur, and it's the same for you as well. God knew that about Paul. God knew that he, he needed some encouragement. And Paul says, just in terms of tactics, my time with the Jews, at least at Corinth, is done. I'm now going to go to the Gentiles. He, remember, he has said that before, right? In other towns. It doesn't mean that he's given up on the Jews altogether in every city, but at least in Corinth he has. In verse 7, and he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verses 7 and 8, I think, give us more reason why the Jews were upset, and particularly with Paul, because they obviously saw him as the ringleader. First of all, there was a man who worshiped God in the synagogue. That usually refers to a Gentile who's considering Judaism, but he you know, isn't a full proselyte yet, hasn't completely converted, but he's, you know, he's serious about it. He, he loves God as far as he knows, but he hasn't converted to Judaism yet. So they were called a, a worshiper of God. And this man lived next door to the synagogue, so he was like a, a possible convert to Judaism. And the Jews are feeling like Paul just stole them from us. 
kind of have this competition going on. He lived next door, and Paul's now using this man's home as kind of a, a base for ministry, since he can no longer go to the synagogue. So a, a possible convert to Judaism has now converted to Christ. Then there was another guy who was a leader in the synagogue, who, who took care of the synagogue, and he converted to Christ. And this was Crispus. He becomes a Christian along with his whole family. And he's mentioned, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 1.14 as being baptized by Paul. It had to be particularly galling for the Jews to have these two come to Christ and then to read also of many other Corinthians. And it's like they're counting noses. And they were just upset at Paul about this. But you know, when you face opposition in whatever ministry you're in, have you ever thought that that's a good sign that you're probably doing things right, all right? If everybody likes you, you're not doing your job. And as it's been in many cases throughout this book, Satan uses religious people as the chief opposition to the gospel. You have people in the name of God opposing the work of God. Wow. I mean, there has got to be special judgment reserved for folks who cloak themselves in self-righteousness and oppose the progress of the Spirit of God working in others. That's a special kind of judgment that God has reserved. Pharisees, these other Jews, and people today, they can have all kinds of things. They can be people who call themselves evangelicals. They can be Catholics, Presbyterian, AG. It doesn't matter what kind of religious people. They just oppose the progress of the gospel. You know what? We always did it this way. Can't do it that way. Never mind that there are hundreds of people coming to Christ. That doesn't matter. They've got drums in the friggin' church. You can't do that. There's all kinds of ways that, that people get in the way of the gospel. God sends a couple to work with Paul. He sent financial support for Paul. He gave Paul, encouragement from others about work that he had done elsewhere. God knew that Paul needed all of that, but it wasn't enough. Here's something else he needed. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, I don't think this was a blanket statement to apply to Paul in every city. I think this applied to Corinth. But God knew that Paul needed this at this point. And I find it poignant that Paul had received much worse opposition in other cities. I mean, in other cities, he'd been jailed. He'd been beaten. He'd had mobs come against him. And it seems like this is rather benign in terms of the kind of opposition. But yet, God knew that Paul needed it right now. 
You know, it lets us know that encouragement can kind of, uh, discouragement can sneak up on us, can it not? Maybe it was just the accumulation of all the other past episodes. And it's telling that Paul let us know how he felt when he arrived at Corinth. Because he tells us this later in 1 Corinthians 2. Listen to this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, I don't think this was some kind of faux humility. You know, this is not Paul saying, you know, aw shucks, you know, I felt fearful. No, this was a true expression of where he was at and how he felt and the state of his heart. I'm fearful. I was trembling, okay? Now, maybe it was because he arrived here alone. Maybe it was because he knew what a cesspool Corinth was. I mean, if God said to me, all right, I want you to go and plant a church in Las Vegas, that would not excite me. That'd be a little not, there are churches there, and I know people who go there. God bless them. That'd be a tough gig. That's all I'm saying. That'd be a tough gig. Maybe it was because he was playing in his own mind what this opposition could get to because he remembers the other places he's been at. He remembers the jail cells. He remembers the beatings. He remembers the people lying about him and and all this other stuff going on, and this is playing in his head. Anyone who attempts to minister in the name of Jesus knows that different things can sap your strength. There's the, there's the negative attitudes and criticism of others. That gets real tiring. There's the sin and the suffering that you bear with other people that you're ministering to, and you can respond like Elijah was self-pity. And the self-pity led Elijah to think, you know, I'm the only one who's faithful in this crowd. Well, that wasn't true, but that's how he felt. And God intervened with Elijah in a famous passage where we read that God did not speak to Elijah in a strong wind. God did not speak to Elijah in an earthquake. God did not speak to Elijah with a fire, but God spoke to Elijah with a whisper. And he tells him, Elijah, get up off your hind parts and go do the next thing. See, God knew that Paul, up to this point, he had had enough. And so the Lord had stepped in to assure him, hey, hey, but I'm not going to give you more than you can bear. Don't be fearful. Get up. Continue. Now, physical persecution would come later, and God would give Paul what he needed in those moments. And, and Paul was certainly secure in Christ, but God would, would limit the persecution, to not overwhelm him. This is good to know, my dear friends, that God is not out like that whack-a-mole just trying to, you know, get you down. Hey, y'all, you're getting out, okay? Trying to pound you down. No. 
that God will allow just enough suffering in his sovereign work, but he's going to accomplish that work through you. And Paul spent 18 months teaching the word of God to the Corinthians. He didn't give up. That's wonderful. Our dear friend Alan Hines, who came and spoke to us about the Gideons. You may not know, in 1985, he was a highway patrolman, and his partner, Jimmy Linegar, was shot dead, and he was shot as well. Alan was. Obviously survived. And here he is now, standing before you, talking about the Gideons, ministering, I know, in a local church, preaching the Word of God. His partner, dead partner's son, is now a highway patrolman doing the work that his father did. Didn't give up. God continued to use them both. Tough? Yeah. Hard? You know, you better believe it. Ever want to give up? I haven't asked him, but I think that probably entered his mind. Here's the point. God whispers to us with a voice, or he might shout to us, but he'll contact us. Maybe it's through a friend. Maybe it's through the word of God. And he nudges us. Are you listening? Are you heeding that voice? When the Holy Spirit prompts you to maybe forgive somebody, are you fighting with them on it? Or are you just, are you going to do it immediately? When the Holy Spirit nudges you to go talk to that person, you have your ear, your heart trained to listen to when the Holy Spirit nudges you and talks to you? In the context that we have here today with the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was nudging Paul not to quit. And faith, in that moment, faith is sometimes best displayed by not quitting. All right, I'll continue with this. Maybe God is telling you that in a marriage. Maybe God is telling you that about a ministry. Dr. V. Raymond Edmond used to say to his students at Wheaton College, it's always too soon to quit. And Charles Spurgeon reminded his London congregation, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. (laughs) (laughs) Faith simply means obeying God's will in spite of the feelings, in spite of the perceived consequences, in spite of the circumstances. Now, I've read the Bible through, I've studied the Bible all of my adult life, and I can never remember a promise where God said serving him would be easy. I don't think that's there. You want to know what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jehoshaphat, Daniel, Mary, Peter, and Paul have in common? Don't say Peter, Paul, and Mary had a group and the others had a group. It wasn't that, no. Okay. You know what they all had in common? They were all told by God not to fear. Now, you can get on yourself for fearing, but I happen to think that fear is more like a a warning light that goes off for us. You know what that warning light is for? God, I need you right now. We all fear. It's what we allow fear to do in our life at that moment that counts. 
If you continue to obey God, be faithful in the midst of fear, that's good. If you allow that fear to freeze you and to quit, that's not so good. So fear is an indicator light that we need God in the moment. And so we're to look at it straight in the eye and say, there is nothing you can throw at me that God can't handle through me, whatever that fear is. And did you notice in this passage the nod to the election of the saints that Luke writes about when he says, many in this city are my people? I think he's speaking not just of those who had already converted, but future ones. In other words, if God initiates a salvation activity, he knows ahead of time who's going to come to him. So if that's true, then just think about how sovereign God is to work in your life to not allow the trials to so overwhelm you. That he's got that under control as well. In other words, from the very beginning in that seminal work of salvation to when you leave this earth, God's sovereign activity is at work in your life. And we can take great confidence in that. I marvel at how God has operated in my life, in our family's life, to sustain us in the midst of discouragement. I can think of so many times that people have, have called or, or written a note or just said, I'm praying for you, and they have no idea what's going on. And God uses that to strengthen us. My mother, many of you know, has Alzheimer's. And we moved her to a facility this week. And as I left her the last two days, when I was leaving, she would beg me to stay. I tried to reassure her that, Mom, you've got, you've got nurses here that, that will help take care of you. There are, there are three meals provided for you. There, you just have to go downstairs and get the meals. Um, and there's somebody that can help her to, to take her to those meals somebody to help her to take the medication. I mean, everything is provided for her. She has a, a little button that if she feels that uh, there's an emergency, she can push that button and, and somebody will come to her. All that is needed for her is provided, but she still yearned for the personal presence of somebody close. I think we all suffer from a kind of Alzheimer's, particularly when fear hits us. We forget that Christ is in us. We forget that he's provided for us. We forget the promises of God. But listen, we're not stuck with just a beeper. We are equipped with the Godhead dwelling inside us. And with him, listen, with him, you know what? You can stay a little longer. You can continue on. You can be faithful. Maybe you feel like you've messed up. God can't use you anymore. Oh, my dear friend. You know why Peter's in the Bible? You know, he denied Christ three times. And God three times had to ask him. You think that's a coincidence? Hey, do you love me? You love my sheep? Don't you think that was overplayed in his mind until he met death that Christ three times reminded me of what my mission is, that he loved me, and I denied him those three times. And God used him greatly. In fact, it says that the church was built upon him and the apostles. He played quite a role, didn't he? And he messed up pretty good. And well, you know, I've, 
I got a divorce, or I did this when I was a teen, or I, you know, there's all kinds of things that would play in it, and, and, and that shame can cause such a fear that God can't use us anymore. My friends, that's, that's not the voice of God. That's, that's your flesh or the evil one, and it's a lie. It's deceit. And so maybe your faith is expressed like this. It says, God, I will receive your forgiveness. And I acknowledge that you indeed have forgiven me and you can use me. And that fellowship is restored. Whatever it is that's tempting you to quit, whatever that fear is, face it. Recognize the indwelling Christ who's with you. And let's get on with the task that is before us. And maybe sometimes it's good to just press the stop button and quit rewinding all the failures in your head and all the reasons why you're no good at this. I am my worst critic. Anybody else relate to that? I don't need others criticizing me because I criticize myself enough. Actually, maybe I do need some people criticizing me in some things, so I shouldn't say that. Because <laughs> God has used that to help me. So. But the point is, is that we criticize ourselves a lot. And that self-talk can be so negative. We're not thinking the, the thoughts of Christ and my, and my position in Christ and the fact that God has outfitted me everything that I need for the moment. That doesn't mean that everything will turn out well. That means he's given me everything I need to be faithful in the moment, even though I might get rejected, even though there might be further trials. But he's given me everything I need in that moment. Why? Because he's faithful. He has promised me that. And here's the payoff. There will be rewards that will reverberate throughout eternity for your faithfulness here on earth. You know why? Because he loves you that much, and he wants to encourage you. Let's pray.